0: I don't get excited about anything until it's happening. But there was a moment before I was signed. I was on my way back to Asbury Park and I was at a vintage shop looking at clothes that were like way too expensive. My lawyer called and she was like, you're going to be in Rolling Stone magazine as the top 10 to watch. And I was like, what? That's crazy. I didn't even have a manager at the time. And I looked at the guy in the shop and I told him, I'm going to be in Rolling Stone. And he was like, what? And I'm like, I'm going to buy this fucking jacket. (laughs) And I bought a $300 jacket.
1: (laughs) Hello, Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal Tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Will Enders.
2: And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for The Chills and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious.
1: Our guest today is acclaimed singer-songwriter, Nicole Atkins. We're going to ask Nicole
2: about the time she offered to babysit the Jonas Brothers, what gospel legend wore her tour t-shirt to the zoo, and how Mr. Mellow Yellow decorated her only guitar with a sharpie. So without
1: further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P
3: show. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. It's well, too yeah, much I think perspective now.
1: You know, Alex, I consider myself an artist, and by that, I mean I have a way of looking at things and expressing that perspective is my sole reason for creating anything, whether it's a song, a script, or even a recipe. And I'm not saying I'm good at what I do or superior (laughs) in my motivations. It's just how I'm wired. And I think our guest today is built the same way. Nicole Atkins may not be well known, but I don't think that's her primary motivation For making music.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. Do you think that she chooses to fly under the radar?
1: No, I don't think that. I don't think she would turn down being famous, but I think whether she's famous or not wouldn't change what she does, which is consistently crank out really, really good music.
2: Yeah, I think people who are in the know would agree with that. If you're only as good as the company you keep, to coin a phrase, Nicole has kept really good company. Between her touring Her collaborations, her recording, and her production, she has worked with really great artists, including Elvis Costello, Mavis Staples, Chris Isaac, Tommy Stinson from The Replacements, and a whole bunch of others.
1: And, you know, to me, that's more validated than having a million TikTok hits.
2: Yeah, like you know anything about using TikTok.
1: (laughs) I'm actually surprised I didn't call it TokTik. But I just want to say, this goes for our podcast, too. Whether we become the next biggest thing or not is really not... Something I'm overly concerned about. I just want us to keep getting better and to continue to express our own effing perspective on things. I agree, old chum. As long as you keep putting money in our bank account
2: to cover our massive production bills. <laughs> We'd also like to get some effing perspective from you, our listeners. Do you have a favorite rock star or entertainer whose spinal tap moments you can't wait to hear? Let us know. We'll see if we can help. DM us at TMEP Show or email. Hello at TMEPShow.com. Coming up, our conversation with Nicole Atkins. But first, a short break. Alan, in the movie that inspired our podcast, This is Spinal Tap, the band Spinal Tap enthusiastically sets off on a tour to promote their new album, only to be met with a buzzsaw of canceled shows,
1: unattended promo events, and
2: general indifference.
1: If only they had gotten their music out there on all the streaming platforms beforehand. Remember, there weren't streaming platforms in 1984 when the movie was made, old chum. Well, at least they should have had an app which would let them upload new releases right from their phone. Phones had cords back then and couldn't be taken out of the house. Well, they could have gotten instant access to their royalties so they could afford seven suites for their crew instead of the one suite on the seventh floor as is in the movie This Is Pile Tap.
2: Alan, there wasn't even an internet 40 years ago. And to be
1: honest, I'm not sure there's a way to do all that stuff even today. Oh, Contraire, (laughs) then you don't know about DistroKid. Huh, well tell me, what's that? DistroKid? Yeah. It's a digital music distribution service that makes it easy for musicians to get their tunes into online stores and streaming services like iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and all the other ones. And you can manage your DistroKid account right from the DistroKid app. I'm sure that's what Spinal Tap did when their single took off in Japan.
2: What don't you understand about the past, present, and future? Not to mention movies versus reality.
1: Who do you think I am, Einstein?
2: (laughs) Anyway, DistroKid is the future of getting your music out there today. Sign up now and get the VIP treatment with a special TMEP show 30% discount. Just type in distrokid.com slash VIP slash TMEP and save big. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash T-M-E-P and get 30% off your full year subscription.
1: Tell them Alan sent you.
2: Yeah, you don't have to do that part.
1: Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van
2: Flip Podcast. Every week I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up and coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast.
1: an artist who as a child stuck her tongue out at donny osmond while he serenaded her with his hit puppy love singer songwriter nicole atkins you've worked with some really great people like Britt daniel from spoon and the avid mm-hmm. brothers right and chris isaac yeah and you actually toured with mavis staples
0: yeah i've done some shows with mavis oh my god uh,
1: that's unbelievable
0: she's incredible She's the best. She's the best. Like the first show I ever did with her, um, it was a huge snowstorm in New Jersey. It was kind of crazy because the next day I was going to rehab for drinking and the show pretty much got snowed out, but we all showed up. And I remember asking the tour manager if I could take a T-shirt and he was like, well, can I take a T-shirt of yours for Mavis? And I was like, Yeah course, you know, thinking that that was just like a polite thing. (laughs) And then I remember seeing on Instagram, like a photo of Mavis at the zoo with monkeys and wearing my t-shirt. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever.
1: That is awesome.
2: Yeah. And speaking of awesome, in 2020, you released your album, Italian Ice, where you worked with the legendary Muscle Shoals rhythm section, which must have been pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. I remember this one time Sitting out on the porch with Spooner, and I was like, you know that Shirley Ellis song, Nitty Gritty? And he was like, oh, yeah, I love that song. We're listening to that and dancing. And then I was like, you know, she recorded a cover, Stardust, that I never knew she did. And I love that song, that Hoagie Carmichael song. And... He was like, I met Hoagie Carmichael when I was 16. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, I was in New York for some Aretha Franklin thing. And I see this old man with this hot young blonde. And I'm like, who's that? And they're like, that's Hoagie Carmichael. And he's like, well, I want to know what Stardust is about. So I went up to him and I was like, what did you write Stardust about? Because it really makes me feel something. And he's like, when my wife died... I took her ashes and I rented a plane and I took the plane up into the sky and sprinkled her ashes and Stardust came to me. I remember being like full (laughs) chills. There were so many moments like that where just like little stories, that's their life. They're not name dropping or anything. And I'm like, I felt so privileged to like hear these stories. Two days ago, I was at Muscle Shoals Sound producing a record for this artist, Emily Levy. And Kelvin Holly from Little Richard's Band, he came and played guitar on it. And we were talking about the Beatles documentary. And he was like, you know, Billy Preston, do you know how he met Richard? Richard was renting Nat King Cole's old house in L.A. And there was a knock at the door and it's 16-year-old Billy Preston. He's like, can I help you? And he's like, oh, I was just coming here because I heard this was Nat King Cole's house. And he was like, well, I'm renting it, but if you want to come take a look. And he goes over to the piano and just starts ripping it up. (laughs) Little Richard was like, hey, do you want to be in my band? (laughs) And he took him on tour, and the Beatles opened for him at the Cavern Club, and that's how Billy Preston met the Beatles then. So when you see the Get Back movie, that's him seeing them again for the first time since then.
1: And I'm just like, whoa. Wow. You also have done a lot of compilation albums, right? Like covering other people. You did one of my favorite Scott Walker. You yeah. did Seven Seal, right? I
0: love Scott Walker.
1: And I couldn't believe Laurie Anderson did The Electrician on yeah. that, which is like my favorite Walker Brothers song. It's really one of the scariest songs ever recorded. Yeah.
0: I remember once going on stage and they're like, so what do you want us to play for your walkout music? And I was like, Scott Walker 4. And they put on Scott Walker Tilt. And everybody (laughs) was like, (laughs) 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 but you definitely don't want to walk out on stage to like late era Scott Walker.
1: (laughs) Alex and I are very, very big fans of The Replacements and you work with Tommy Stinson.
0: Yeah, it was two Bash and Pop singles. And it's funny because I never listened to The Replacements growing up because I remember my first boyfriend had his friend break up with me over the phone. Couldn't even do it himself. And there was a replacement song on or no, it was a (laughs) uh, Paul Westerberg song. And I was like, I'm never listening to this music again. You know, it was a moment in time where I was like, fuck this. And I met Tommy (laughs) at one of my (laughs) solo shows. He came to a Valentine's day show that I was doing up in Hudson he got my record Slow Phaser and said he liked it. And we hung out and became friends. And then he asked me to produce two songs for him. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do? And he was like, I want you to just do what you do on your records to these. And I was like, yes. (laughs) So they were on tour with Bash and Pop and they came into the studio for like six hours and we got basic tracks. And then I sang because... Tommy was not in the space to sing the vocal, and then he cried, and he was like, this is why I wanted you to do it. But it was really great to be asked to produce something for him. He's an incredible writer, and I just had never produced anything for anybody other than myself. Now I do it a lot, and
1: I love it. That's a pretty good way to start.
0: Yeah.
2: So I just have to ask, any Spinal Tap moments that you can relate (laughs) with Tommy directly or that he shared with you from the replacements days or from his gig playing bass with Axel oh as a member of Guns N' Roses?
0: I don't know if I'm allowed to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you one of my fun Tommy Stinson stories is my mom. She knows all of the musician friends of mine. Like she doesn't know their music, but she knows them as my friends, you know, so she'll be like, how's Tommy doing? Everybody's like her little babies. And so we were doing a variety show during the pandemic. We did a show on Amazon, Twitch, that was like part performance, part comedy. And I interviewed bands. The only place that I could find a spot with good Wi-Fi was in my mom's bedroom. And so I'm interviewing Tommy about Guns N' Roses. And he was telling me a story about meeting David Bowie when he was 15 after like being out all night his wife lit his hair on fire at the limelight or something too. <laughs> and, but so my dad comes in and my dad's like, who are you talking to? And I'm like, Oh dad, this is Tommy. He's like, how you doing Tommy? You a golfer? <laughs> and he's like, uh, No. <laughs> And he goes, okay, I got to go. And I was like, oh, looks like he's done with you. And then my mom comes in. She's like, oh, my God, is that Tommy? How you doing? And then I had her talk to him and she was like, you know, when I'm sitting out on the deck smoking weed or she didn't say smoking weed, she said having my little Shangri-La. And it was just really cute seeing my mom and Tommy like being cute together. And then when I went to Minneapolis for a gig, I, I took his mom out to lunch. Ah. And I was like, now we've hung out with each other's moms. So when I was a kid, I always thought we were like famous or something because we would stay at the Trump Plaza in a suite in Atlantic City <laughs> every weekend. And I didn't know uh, my dad had a gambling problem. <laughs> so we got front row seats to every show And we had tickets to the Everly Brothers. Cool. I love the Everly Brothers, but I was a kid. I didn't know who they were because they weren't a cartoon. And uh, my mom was like, Nicole, that's one of the Everly Brothers in the elevator with us. You should get his autograph. And I had my Disney autograph book. And I was like, excuse me, will you sign this? And he said, no. No. I'm not signing autographs. And everybody in the elevator was like, she's a child. What's wrong with you? (laughs) And I just said, that's okay. I don't even know who you are. Now I think about that. I'm like, oh, God, no. But a few weeks after that, we moved and my neighbor was 16. MTV just came out and she let me hang out with her and her friends. So I like loved Motley Crue. I love Twisted Sister, all the hair metal stuff. And we went and saw Donnie and Marie Osmond. And I was like, this is so lame. Like I was seven and I was like, this is so lame. And then they keep walking by me and smiling. And then he comes up to me, the second set. And uh, he's like, what's your name, little girl? And I was like, Nicole. And he's like, come on up here, Nicole. It's like, everybody take a look at you. And then he starts singing puppy love. And they call it puppy love And everybody's like Aw. And I didn't know what was happening Because he's not looking at me at all And I don't know the song He's not looking at me So I start like throwing the goat at him And I'm like Like ah! ah! like making all these faces And everybody in the place is dying And then he turns around And he's like what are you doing And then after that I was just like Okay Donny Osmond's my boyfriend Get me in st- to a theater class, because that was fun.
2: <laughs> so I want to ask about the Stone Pony, the legendary club in Ashbury Park. Yeah. That's part of the lore of Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, and other New Jersey rockers. Do you have any stories of playing there, seeing yeah. gigs there as a teenager?
0: God, there's so many. So my first like big gig ever was opening for Donovan.
2: You're kidding.
1: Wow.
2: Electricle banana. Yeah.
0: I opened for Donovan and I remember afterwards he was signing stuff at the merch booth and I walked up and I was like, hey, you know, thank you so much for letting me open. Would you sign my guitar? And he was like, well, are you leaving right now? And I was like. Yeah. He's like, well, if you want to hang out, I'll be done in like a half an hour. And I was like, oh my God, he wants to hang out? Like, this is crazy. And so we went backstage, we smoked a joint, and he told me like all these stories about like Nina Simone and like how he would do his vibrato um, Hurdy Gurdy Man, like was, <laughs> like he, I thought it was a delay pedal, but it was all, he just did it. Really? And then Yeah. And then he talked about George Harrison And like, we're all pretty stoned at this point. And he's like, sing me the newest song you've written. It doesn't even have to be finished. So I did. And then he was like trying to sing along to it. But he's like totally in the wrong key. And he was like, my (laughs) boyfriend at the time was like trying not to lose it. And then he was like, do people still draw on guitars? And I was like, I don't know. Do whatever you want. And it was the only guitar I had, but he drew all over it cliffs and birds and all that and i was just like fuck
1: <laughs> donovan you <laughs> fucked up my guitar i
0: know i remember calling up Rockline once when they had like a fan merch appraiser guy and i called and i got through and i told him about the donovan guitar and the guy was like wait till he dies and i was like shit <laughs> but that was a crazy night and then another night i remember playing this light-of-day festival and meeting Bruce Springsteen in the line for cheese fries. It was catered by the windmill hot dog place. And I was just like, Bruce Springsteen? when he was like, what's up, kid? The windmill's great, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, that's fucking great. I was like, Bruce Springsteen cheese fries. Yes.
1: Time to find out what your favorite scenes are in This Is Spinal Tap.
0: Just Fran Dreischer being a manager, being like, Bobby Fleishman. (laughs) That was the first thing that I liked about Spinal Tap when I first saw it, because I never saw her as anything other than the nanny. Right. I love her.
1: All right. So Bobby Fleckman, right? Bobby Fleckman is a archetype for a label person. Have you ever met someone like Bobby Fleckman in your career?
0: I've met many Bobby Fleckmans. Remember that guy, Donnie Einer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was at Columbia? Yeah. I signed my contract to Columbia, and it was with the president, this guy, Steve Greenberg. We went to a tequila bar and had, like, lots of tequila. And I was like, I just signed my record deal. Like, where's the party at? And and he was like, well, we're having a radio promo party for the Jonas Brothers if you want to come. And I was like, yes. (laughs) I was hammered but lucid. I get there, I tell one of the Jonas brothers, if they ever need a babysitter, I could babysit them. And he's like, I'm like 19. I'm like, that doesn't matter. <laughs> we could still do that. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's Donnie Einer. And like, I've always heard his name in books and shit, you know, and I just thought he would be ancient, you know. And so it was just like, congratulations. Welcome to the family, blah, blah, blah. And everybody was like tiptoeing around him. And it just made me feel super awkward. So he was having this like neon pink drink. And I was like, what are you drinking? A daiquiri? And he's like, it's a strawberry margarita. Why? You want one? And I'm like, yeah, can you get me one? He's like, you want me to get you one? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And then he was like, oh, okay. And he goes to like get one. somebody bumps into him and it goes all down his shirt. And the music stopped. (laughs) Everybody was like, fuck. (laughs) <laughs> I thought this would be funny, but it, wa- it wasn't. I put a straw in my mouth and I was like, what are you am I going to drink this off your shirt? Or are you going to go clean yourself up? And he was like, fuck you. Who the fuck are you? Oh. And I was like, uh, and he was like, how old are you? I'm like 27. And he's like, you're fucking old. We signed you. Who's producing your record? I'm like, I'm not sure yet. And he was like, it should be little Steven. I'm like, oh, cause I'm from Asbury Park. That's original. And I thought it was funny. Looking back it wasn't funny. I woke up on some marketing girl's couch, called my manager and she's like, "Oh, he thought you were hilarious. He said you reminded him of Patty Smith, blah blah blah." After I left the label a few years later, I found out that he wanted to drop me that day and I was too expensive to drop. And then he ended up getting fired 2 weeks after that, so thank God. <laughs>
3: Hey everyone, it's Chris Pandolfi inviting you to check out the new season of my podcast, Inside the Musician's Brain, with new episodes airing now.
2: Hearing it in that room, these guys playing this thing and trying to figure out how to play
3: this song was mind-blowing. It's so inspiring to know there's so much more to it than you ever thought, and it just opened another door. But when people find faith because they need to, in terms of just filling a void to feel better without actually being better, that's when it becomes a crutch much like you know drugs and alcohol do
0: man i don't have all the time in the world here if i want to be a professional bluegrass musician i felt like i had to take a very like strategic approach just trying to get rid of the barriers and and figure out what those barriers were
3: the feelings still come and i have to reckon with that but i think i have better ways of moving forward and not being stuck which i think was the killer for me catch all that and so much more on the new season of inside the musician's brain
0: It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most
3: notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Nope. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh no. Oh yes, but fear not, Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com.
1: Hey, listeners, decide for yourself if there's a reason why Alex and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we're going to play one of our songs. So stick around.
2: So you were once the focus of a record company bidding war that Columbia Records ended up winning. It's a situation that many musicians dream of to be catapulted into a higher tax bracket among the other benefits. What was that like for you?
0: It was exciting because I was super broke. So I went from like having to like split a piece of pizza with my friend to like getting to eat delicious fish every single night of the week. (laughs) You know, they got me a Starbucks and they're like, I hope you don't judge me from this. I'm like, fuck it. I can't even afford a Starbucks. This is wonderful. You know, that's what I remember most from like the bidding war was just the food. That I got to eat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great when they pay for your food?
0: I let it draw out for a while.
2: <laughs> like banking the calories for when the hard times come back.
0: Yeah. It's just weird. I had a mural company. So I painted murals and I played gigs. And I just never thought of, I'm going to try to make it as a musician. It just was something I always did. And so when it was like, okay, you could be on this indie label And then I went to Columbia and I was like seeing a picture of Pink Floyd and Barbara Streisand. And I was like, why the fuck not? Let's do this.
1: Okay. So let's talk about that because every band has had that moment where they thought, okay, this is all working and this is actually happening. Mm -hmm. And you're afraid to say that because that's when things go south. I remember I once had a manager call us from Virgin Records and said, Alan, Everybody here loves you. Everyone loves your voice. Listen, she holds her phone up, goes, everyone's listening to your record. You are going to be the biggest ever. And you're going to have me to thank. That's a weird thing to say. Yeah, because it, it totally went south within <laughs> five seconds, right? Have you ever had that moment where it's like, OK, I think I can actually say this is going to happen?
0: Um, No, I've never had that. I mean, everything from the jump was always rocky. I started my record with Lenny K in New York, and then the president got fired. And then the next day, and our person got fired. And then I was with a new one that she wanted to put her mark on it. So she fired Lenny. And then I sat at home for like six months refinishing furniture to sell, even though I'm on Columbia Records. Just like, what the fuck? Then Rick Rubin came on as president and the day he came on, my record was coming out in two weeks and I did an Amex commercial. I got made fun of for doing it, but it's like when you have $5,000 bill on an Amex because you've never had money and you get offered a hundred grand to do a commercial and you could pay off your Amex that way, <laughs> you know, I'm not a person to sniff at a paycheck because they're hard to come by. Anyway, he took the record off the schedule two weeks before it was supposed to come out. My manager was like, I'll fix this. And then her mom died the next day of a heart attack out of nowhere. So the commercial came out and there was none of my music online. And everybody thought I was an actress and all my press went away. So after that, I don't get excited about anything until it's happening. But there was a moment before I was signed... I was on my way back to Asbury Park and I was at a vintage shop looking at clothes that were like way too expensive just to look at them. My lawyer called and she was like, you're going to be in Rolling Stone magazine as the top 10 to watch. And I was like, what? You know, like, that's crazy. I didn't even have a manager at the time. And I looked at the guy in the shop and I told him, I'm going to be in Rolling Stone. And he was like, what? And I'm like, I'm going to buy this fucking jacket and I bought a $300 (laughs) jacket
2: (laughs) and uh, And paid for with an Amex. Perfect. (laughs) It all goes full circle. You know who else loved the Fran Drescher scene? Corin Tucker from Slater Kinney also called that out as as her fave. So you're in good company.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I love Corin. I saw them at uh, Southpaw back in Brooklyn way back in the day, like, I guess 2005, that was when I first saw them.
2: I took a year off of college and moved to New York with my girlfriend in 88. You know, we moved from sublet to sublet back in the time when you would actually go out and you'd buy a copy of the Village Voice yeah. for a dollar at 6.45 in the morning on a Wednesday. And then you like you'd at, like, at 7 a.m., you'd start calling you know, from the classified ads to find your next place.
0: I did that in 2003. Did you really? Yeah. The Village Voice was how I found apartments and jobs.
2: Our first place was in Hell's Kitchen when Hell's Kitchen was really still quite scary. Quite
0: hellish. <laughs>
2: it was hell. The Spinal Tap Hell Hole.
0: Yeah. I used to live in Bensonhurst. I used to sleep in my car if I drink too much at the open mic nights in the East Village. But Responsible. I got a place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was never a drunk driver. That's good. But I moved to Bensonhurst and like it was so far. I'd fall asleep on the train all the time and end up in like Coney Island, like a (laughs) drool on my shoulder.
1: Was it your drool? Yeah, (laughs) thankfully
0: it was my drool.
1: Well, speaking of hell holes and drinking, I heard that you fell in a hell hole once when you were walking in the parking lot at a hotel.
0: Yeah, I fell in a sinkhole. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I just woke up in the bottom of it.
1: Hello?
0: Hello? Hello? Echo! 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 I was coming back from a gig and uh, we were at a bar across the street and it was snowing and raining. And so we were just like, oh, our hotel's right there. Let's just walk up this little grassy knoll instead of going up the driveway because I thought that somebody might not see us because it was so dark. I was trying to be safe and there was a hole in the parking lot that was like 10 feet deep and it wasn't marked off. And my friend that was with me kept walking. He missed it and we were talking and he turned around when I didn't answer him and just saw this giant hole in the parking lot. And I was in the bottom of it and knocked me out. And he was like, can you grab my hand? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you fell, you're bleeding. And I looked up and I just saw all these rocks and I just watched that movie The Descent. So, like, the first (laughs) thing that came to my mind was, like, get me out of here. There's demon trolls down here. (laughs) But it was kind of the best thing that ever happened to me because it changed my life. Two centimeters over, I would have broken my spine. And it didn't. And I just got my shit together and got rid of a lot of fear and anxiety about life because – always in the back of my head that you could die at any time in the bottom of a hole in a shitty hotel parking lot. So it really changed my perspective.
1: (laughs) You know, if you survive these things, they can really change your life. You know, Alex used to work with the band, The Bodines, and their manager, he was like sitting on the edge of a trampoline and someone bounced him off and he became a quadriplegic, right? Jesus.
2: Paraplegic, actually, paralyzed from the waist down. Some friend of his had a pad that was for catching pole vaulters and he got bounced out and he broke his back and never walked again.
0: Man, anything can happen to you and it's like, you shouldn't be afraid of it, but you should also remember when you're feeling super negative or anxious that this might be it. So you might as well go for it and have fun. I still have like a little ball of scar tissue on my right butt cheek that I call Carl From the movie Basket Case, when that guy had that like tumor named Carl that he had to hide with a basket and it would tell him to kill people.
2: But (laughs) I just, on any days when you're feeling a little bit down, Carl's there to just kind of buck you up and remind you how, how lucky you are.
0: Yeah. Carl's like, remember that time you didn't die?
1: Yep.
2: (laughs) I do want to just say one more thing about Mark McCraw, who managed the Bodines for a number of years. First of all, he gave me my first really good break in the music business, being their tour manager, which then started my career as a tour manager with many others. Up until that point, he'd always gone on the road with them, starting when they were just driving around in cars and vans to when they finally got to tour buses doing everything from the wheelchair.
3: Wow!
2: He was manager, tour manager, front of house sound mixer. I mean, talk about a guy that was just not going to be kept down. So I know he's a listener to this podcast, so uh, hopefully he'll hear this. Thank you, Mark. You've shared a series of setbacks that you lived through after being signed, a change in the record company president, your A&R person leaving, having your album pulled off the schedule, your manager's mother dying. I mean, it's no joke that luck is as critical to success as talent.
0: Absolutely. And it took me a long time to realize that the only thing that I can control is the making of things. So... I don't worry about what's going to happen anymore. And I think that served me well when the pandemic happened. All I can really do is do the work. And that's where the fun is, you know. So even when the pandemic happened, my record was supposed to come out. I was leaving for tour. And then we had to turn around. And it was like, oh, shit, what are we going to do now? And I was like, well, if we're going to be home, I'm just going to turn my house into a television set. You know, because I did scenic painting and I turned my attic into like Pee Wee's Playhouse and just started a TV show. And it, I had a blast.
1: But that's really how you got to do it, right? I mean, we're only in charge of our own productivity, everything else is out of our control. Mm-hmm. For example, back in 2010, I did something that you did. Instead of shopping this script around, I raised money on Kickstarter to shoot it myself. It's called CPA Holes. There's a link on our website. You did the same thing. You went on Kickstarter and raised money for your Mondo Amore tour, correct?
0: Yeah. Actually, that got me into doing improv comedy because I was at my friend's house who was a comedian and I was like, I have to make this video where I'm asking people for money and it feels weird. (laughs) And he was like, oh, let me get my comedy partner over and we'll play your shitty manager and your shitty tour manager. And I couldn't believe We made enough money to like buy a tour van. I still have that tour van. It still runs. And buy some sound equipment. You know, like, holy crap. I can't believe these people even know who I am. I have a Patreon and sometimes we'll just go on a Zoom. People will be drinking beers and like it's supposed to be for like a half an hour. And I'll be on there for like two hours. I just love people. I love music so much. The fact that people like mine. Makes me really grateful, like blows my mind.
1: That's a great perspective. When we were talking about luck, you know, I find that a lot of people who have made it don't appreciate the component of luck. They think it was all them, right? That's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. And that's how you keep grounded, right? Yeah. But I think that being able to realize that luck is such a big deal here is really important.
0: Yeah, it's luck and it's also having a good community. As the years go by, like I look at the people that are in my circle of friends and creative friends, and I feel like that's my luck too.
1: I personally feel that even though I had absolutely no success in any metric, I'm very proud of my work. And that's more important to (laughs) to to Alex Smiles. Uh, That's success. That's success. And I noticed you did that too, because you stood up to Rick Rubin at Columbia and said, I don't want to do what you want me to do, right? Didn't they try to make you in what image they wanted you to be? And you weren't interested in that.
0: Yeah. I just love music so much. If I had to do something that wasn't something I wanted to listen to, then I would just go paint a house for money. And that's what I do now. Like if I need money, I'll sell some paintings. I'd rather not fuck up music. Trying to people please.
1: So, Nicole, tell our audience what you're doing now, where they can find your social media stuff, where you're playing.
0: Yeah, I've put out a record called Memphis Ice. That's my last record, Italian Ice, re-recorded live with strings and piano. So, you can listen to that on Spotify, or you could order vinyl from my website, NicoleAdkins.com. And I'm on all of the social medias as myself. So, at Atkins no H in my name, Atkins like the diet.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's a lot of fun talking to you and getting to know you and good luck on Memphis, it's a great album. Thank you, Nicole.
0: Yeah, nice talking to you guys.
2: Alan, I think Nicole showed us that you can carve out a pretty good career for yourself in music if you're doing it for the right reasons. And without compromising her artistic vision, She's been able to make really great music on her own terms and working with her musical idols. I mean, she, she named some names I know people you'd love to work with. That's success in my
1: book. Well, then, obviously, having a podcast with me is successful to you because I'm one of your idols. Uh, y- y- okay, y- so anyways, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> silence.
2: You're an American idol, that's for sure.
1: And she hasn't had to be a big sellout and start a podcast uh, what are you saying here? Right, I'm just kidding. I, you know, I love podcasting with you. It's my lifelong
2: dream. Jeez, well, you'd better. You know why, Alan? You know why you better appreciate it? I know all your secrets.
1: Yeah, and I plan to tell every one of them on our show so you have zero leverage on me. Oh, Yeah. Including the time in Amsterdam's red light district. Okay, all right, all right, I give, I give, okay. Some things don't leave the podcast, okay? <laughs> yeah,
2: right. yeah, what happens on the podcast, stays on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks to Nicole Atkins for sharing her stories on our show. Thanks also to Ken Weinstein at Big Hassle Media for helping us put together this conversation. Too Much Epic Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. The episode was edited by Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Castbox, Overcast, Podcast Attic, Pocket Cast, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP Show, or join our mailing list on our website,
1: tmepshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller. On behalf of my co-host Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. Since I consider Nicole somewhat of a chanteuse, I thought I'd dust off my most Chantousian song, if that's a word, Mosquito, from my solo album Wuthering Depths. Hope you like it, and see you next time on Too Much
3: Effing Perspective. Mosquitoes love your skin.